0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void required prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Talk Recorded live. It's Mike again, and uh, do some more reading. Plug along. It's really, you know, it's warm out, and... uh, I really, yeah, where's a middle aged man else to go? I mean, I guess I.
0: If
2: I had the health, I may go for a nice walk in the park
0: and get some sun. But I don't. And I don't have my son. To go to the pool because
2: there's no point in a middle aged man going to a pool by himself. A Man of
1: Heroic Endurance Joe by Charles R. Swindell. And, uh, it's still nothing but the truth. My journey to find it. And all my hope rests in the truth that God, that God exists. It's interesting. Atheism, by definition, is a philosophy without hope. When you think about it, with God, the belief in God that there is justice and it will be served in this life or the next.
2: Since many a time it's not just, it's served in this
1: life, our Pope is in the next life. Hence, we need a Savior, because every one of us by God-given conscience, unless it's been removed from you,
2: The Spirit of God
1: tells us that we're not as good as we like to think, and tells us that we all deserve to be judged and to be damned, and that the only hope is a Savior. And it turns out that our God is that Savior, that He made it, He presented to us only begotten, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or the Godhead, the Triune God, the One who created us, who created this world, came in the flesh and paid for our sins. Justice being served. That if we gain by His merciful grace, faith in Him,
2: we can have eternal
1: life, we can know what justice is, we can know what peace is, we can know what true, the true meaning of life is. For those who disagree, I understand, I used to be in your camp. The only thing I ask of you is to really think it out. And to do the thing you do not want to do, and that is to pray, to get on your knees, to prostrate yourself, and ask for wisdom. You don't want to be a prat now, do you? Chapter sixteen another long winded monologue. In the church I serve as senior pastor. I decided to preach through the entire book of Job. I began the expositional series of sermons the first Sunday of march two thousand two. It wasn't until mid November I delivered the final message from the same book. As I mentioned in my introduction, the congregation of Stonebriar Community Church was very patient as the series went on and on and on and on. As you can imagine, there were some humorous moments during those months when folks had some fun with me about the length of the series and the endless theme of all the suffering and hardship Pain Job endured, like a letter one father mailed to me, which included a comment his daughter made had made. She had asked Eddie, "I was I five or six when Pastor Chuck began preaching on Job." When I travel, I tell people it's the only series I've ever preached where, when I announced this will be my final message on Job. The congregation gave me a standing ovation. A rousing applause was more out of relief than gratitude. In the light of all that, you can only imagine their response when the Sunday arrived and we were months into Job with more months ahead of us before we would finish, and they read my sermon title, uh, another long-winded monologue. I got some classic comments on that. We have TV monitors in the large hallways of our church outside our worship center. They display our calendar of events for the upcoming week, as well as special announcements to inform everyone of what's ahead. He also displayed my sermon title from one week to the next. Well, when this title went on display, our ushers passed along to me a few choice comments they claimed to have overheard. Emphasis on claim. After reading another long-winded monologue, I heard that one man shrugged and whispered to his wife, so what else is new? And then there was a teenager who passed by and glanced at the monitor and frowned and said, "Oh no, not again." I told my congregation sometimes, as pastor, as pastor feels, a pastor feels like the Rodney Dangerfield of the church, and when the flock gets ready, and when the flock gets really heavy. the flat gets really heavy, silly me. I've been known to quote Paul's words to Timothy out loud with tongue-in-cheek, indeed all who desire to live godly will be persecuted, 2nd Timothy 3.12. Now admittedly a series of Job is long and can begin to be wearisome a preacher learns over the years that there is just so much a person can absorb at one sitting. Young, inexperienced preachers don't know that, so they tend to say too much for too long. The flock becomes bored and edgy. Long-winded sermons can be awfully tiring. Well, he was President Ronald Reagan. The great communicator loved to tell the story of the young country boy who had just finished school but had never before preached sermon. When he arrived at the country church, he walked in, and to his amazement, there was one rancher present. The church was empty except for this one man. He was sitting about halfway back on the hard pew. So the young preacher walked back there, shook his hand, and said, Well, what do you think I ought to do? And the old rancher said, Well, I don't rightly know, son. I'm just a cowpoke. But if I went out in my field and found only one steer, I'd feed it. That's all the younger preacher needed. He climbed up in the pulpit and delivered a sermon that went on and on and on and on. Over an hour later, he finally ended the marathon. He walked back to the rancher and asked, well, what do you think? I don't rightly know, son, but I'll tell you this. If I went out in my field and I found only, and I had only one steer, I wouldn't feed him the whole load. Admittedly, i Preach a little too long at times. I'm sure my shows are a little too long, but that's okay. <clears throat> I'm not a preacher. I'm just a guy that has its, that just has a community call that does it to reach out and to share my journey. So, but I'm encouraged that I'm in good company. Do you remember an experience that Apostle Paul had regarding a man named uh, Euty- Eutychus? 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 Eutychus. <clears throat> the only time he mention- he's mentioned in the scriptures, something embarrassing happened. The setting is recorded in Acts 20 On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them and intending to leave the next day. And he he prolonged his message until midnight. I have these words in the margin of my Bible alongside that verse, God bless him. The story continues, there were many lamps in the upper room where... We were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the window seal, sinking into deep sleep, a deep sleep, Acts 20, verses 8 and 9. Isn't that a great way to put it? The man was slowly sinking into a deep sleep. I've seen that so many times in my ministry, it's when they start to drool, That I have to think about stopping and Paul kept on talking and he was overcome by spirit and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead X 29 I love this story but Paul went down and fell upon him and after embracing him he said do not be troubled for his life is in him when he had gone back and had broken bread and eaten He talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. Acts 20, 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11. This dear man just couldn't stay with it. He finally sinks into a deep sleep, falls backwards down three floors, and dies. Miraculously, the apostle raises him up. Charles Spurgeon's familiar warning is worth repeating. Quote, remember, if... We go to sleep during the sermon and die today. There is no apostles to restore us, end of quote. Having written all this about preaching too long, you'll be relieved to know that my title to this chapter has nothing to do with me personally. It has everything to do with a man named Eli- Elihu, Job's fourth friend, who steps out of the shadows and talks much too long Saying far too little, Eliphaz Bildad, and so far, have gone on and on with their caustic comments and insulting conclusions. Mercifully, as we have seen, they quiet, they quit talking. No doubt no, they still hung around, frowning at him, but they stopped flapping their lips. If you're not familiar with the story, don't think that all sermons. Had ended. Not so. There are. There's one more, a long one. Elihu has waited his turn. When he talks, he doesn't stop until he has delivered what amounts to six chapters in the Bible. Job 20, uh, 32 through 37. The length of these chapters in the biblical text is longer than 12 other Old Testament books and 17 of the 27 New Testament books and letters. I suppose we could say Elihu fed Job the whole load. Observing Elihu's approach. Instead of getting bogged down in needless detail, let's begin by glancing over Elihu's words as we observe his approach. Perhaps it will help to make... A few general observations Elahu delivers four speeches. Two of them compromise two biblical chapters that cover his initial message chapter thirty two and thirty three. His second speech is recorded in Job thirty four, his third speech in the chapter thirty five, and his fourth and final speech in chapters thirty six and thirty seven. Like many sermons we have heard Elihu. Is more effective at the beginning and the ending than he is in the middle of his talk, and that section he gets a little dull and boring. In, in all fairness, Lahu communicates two excellent points. First, God's disciples, God disciples a person to turn him from the errors of his ways. That principle is as timeless as it is true. God never wastes tests. What God bears down, his goal is to turn the wayward back to himself. Second, God governs justly. He's fair. Another reliable fact, the major major theme of all that Elihu has to say can be stated in three words. God is sovereign. He is not only God of all He's not only good all the time, he is in control all the time. Even when I'm sick, yes, even when you're sick, even when I can't understand why, yes, even when you can't explain the reasons. Like this right now, you ask. Absolutely. God never shocked, is never shocked or surprised. Our lives, therefore, are never out of God's control. And furthermore, God doesn't feel obligated to explain Himself. The truth is, even if He did, most of us still wouldn't get it. Because His ways are deep and His plan is profound, in hopes of driving the significant truth home, I will repeat it, God is sovereign, He doesn't explain Himself, nor should He feel obligated to do so neither job nor the three counselors answer elihu at any time these six biblical chapters run uninterrupted there's no response there's no dialogue from start to finish it's a monologue a long-winded monologue at that interestingly elihu unlike the others admits up front that he's angry in fact the bible the biblical account states no less than four times that the man is burning with anger <clears throat> then these three men caused uh, excuse me and, and then these three men ceased answering job because he was righteous in his own eyes but the anger of lahu burned against job his anger burned because he justified himself before god and his anger burned against his three friends, because they had found no answer, and yet had condemned Job. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job, because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. Job 32, verses 1-5. through 5. Remember when you've blurted something out in anger? Remember a few more of those times when you were burning with anger? During those outbursts, we not only said things we wished we hadn't said, we said a lot more than we wish we would have said. But we also may have said a few things... That needed to be said, and those outrages, we were temporarily out of control. Keep that in mind as you read Elihu's words. So, Elihu, the son of Barechal, I guess, the Buzzite, huh, spoke out and said, I am young in years, and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak, and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise. That's true. Not many elders understand justice. Job 32, 6-9. We have learned over the years that we need to respect those who are older. Elihu's words represent his feelings of intimidation. He's reluctant to speak. He even says he was afraid to tell them his thoughts. But he does make an accurate observation. Having listened to those three gray heads who spoke earlier, he states that those who are up in years may not be wise. He's right. The passing of many years is no guarantee that wisdom has been gleaned. A person can be old and foolish. We, if we find Elihu a bit of a mystery, it is because he is insightful. One moment and insipid the next, he can be both pointed with insight and shortly thereafter dull. I think another, I think author David Atkinson's word for him is a good one, enigma. Elihu is rather an enigma. He burst on the stage as an angry young man full of his own importance, offering to clarify the situation for Job and his friends, angry with the muddling They have got themselves into and one respect it is rather like a comic turned comic turn for he manages to spend a lot of time not saying very much he covers much of the ground of the other friends while supposedly saying something new he claims to say more than the three friends have already said and this is currently true at the beginning and end of his speeches, but the middle speeches are cold and disappointing. A lapse into moralism which seems very hard on Job. Perhaps in these middle speeches Elihu or La Eli, yeah, Elihu is setting himself up as a sort of arbiter between Job and God. Perhaps he sees himself in a courtroom trying to argue out a case as co- 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 coolly and dispassionately as he can, he is trying to set out the a- arguments for and against from the perspective of a detached observer. Elihu bursts away. He makes his own mistakes. It's going to be Elihu blusters away and makes his own mistakes. But in the middle of his blustering, there are some gems. It is these gems which are part of the preparation Job needs, and we readers need to be ready to hear the, the Lord. Elihu's admission says it all. I'm full of words. Job 32:18. He's also full of himself. Being younger, he is rash. Being angry, he talks too much. Analyzing Elihu's mistakes, the man makes at least four mistakes once he hit the floor. First, he took too long getting started. You know how we'll say to someone we know very well, like somebody in our family, please get to the point, or what is it exactly you're trying to say? We're pressing for the bottom line. Early on, you want to say that, Elihu, what is it? Just say it. And then, when he finally does, you think, "Sorry, I heard you." Second, he comes across as pompous. We don't read Elihu's words very long before we hear pride oozing between the lines. He leaves little room for a response. He states his opinion with too much dogmatism. He sees himself as the final authority. He doesn't merely speak; he preaches. Let me give you a tip, if it's one-on-one or one-on-a-few, leave the preaching to someone else. If it's with your kids, don't preach. If it's with your spouse, don't preach. If it's at work with your boss or somebody who works for you, again, don't preach. Preaching isn't appropriate in small group settings, Elihu forgets that. Third, he states what Job already knew. He brings nothing new to Job's attention. That's why Job never responds. He rehearses familiar information. Fourth, he never acknowledges that he doesn't know for sure. There's something refreshing about someone who is speaking who's willing to admit, I really don't know all that I should know about this, but it's wonderful when you're around someone Who has a wealth of knowledge, but you hear him admit, I'm not the final word. A man who meant a great deal to me, meant a great deal to me during my student years and means a great deal to me to this day, is one of my mentors, Dr. Bruce Walkins. Walk? Walkies? I guess it's what. W-A-L-T-K-E. Walkie. Dr. Walkie is a fine a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures as I have ever been around. It was my privilege to study under him the last three of my four years in the seminary. What a splendid experience. I still remember taking a preparatory course in Hebrew when someone before we officially began the course that fall, we would sit on the tall stool up front as he talked. Dr. Wilkie would cradle his Old Testament Kittle Hebrew Bible in both arms as he read from it and would occasionally sway from side to side. Sometimes I noticed he would tear, tear up tear up. He would weep as he read. I wept for other reasons as I tried to read it. He is truly a wonderful, blunt, brilliant scholar, and tender heart. He not only knew the text, he understood the footnotes, knew the textual apparatus, he knew arguments for the interpretation, and yet he never came across as the final word. Over 30 years ago, while I was pastoring a church near the seminary, I was doing some in-depth study and in proverbs on the family, especially emphasizing the rearing of children. In my own work, in the original language, I came up with an interpretation that was somewhat of a maverick approach to the subject. Imagine that. As I became Interestingly, more convinced of my position, I decided to run my unusual interpretation to Dr. Wilkie. Wilkie, I called and made an appointment, and a few days later sat down with him in his tiny office. He was gracious to see me. Chuck, now, Chuck, how are you? Fine, Dr. Wilkie. Wilkie, sit down. What's on your mind? I said, well, I'm doing some work in, early, in the early part of Proverbs 22. He smiles, oh, one of my favorites. So he turned to that section in his well-worn Hebrew book. As I explained my position after he, having done all my work in the text, I just needed some sh- to be sure I'm not off base in any of this. He listened and didn't interrupt as I spent about 20 minutes going over what I had come up with and why and how I planned to apply it to the congregation. When I looked up, he had his chin resting on his hands. He was looking directly at me. I never forgot his gentle words, Chuck, there are no popes in the body of Christ. I'm not the final word on this. What you have concluded looks fine to me. If that's what you have determined, and the Lord has shown you this interpretation after careful research, that's what you must preach. I'm telling you, I could have danced out of there. His words were not only a relief, they provided a wonderful reminder that the final authority of truth does not reside in human flesh. I will never forget his comment. There are no popes in the body of Christ. I don't care what authority you have, how long you have studied in the field, how many advanced degrees you have earned, you are not the final word. You are still a learner. I have found the scholars who have taught me the most are the most teachable. We are all on a learning curve I've learned something from every pastoral intern I've mentored. Hopefully they've picked up some helpful things for me as well. From the way he comes across, we can tell that Elihu is not a learner. Elihu is busy with that long index finger punching it against Job's sternum. To make matters worse, chances are he never had one boil on his body. Job's covered with them. I want to step into that scene and say, There are no popes, Elihu. Learn from this man. Analyzing Elihu's speeches. Since the man is so long-winded, I'll not try to examine every jot and tittle of his speeches. Instead, let's focus on a few things that are worth mentioning. His first speech. If I were to sum up his first speech in a few words, it would be, God has not been silent, but his message is not as you had expected. This is underscored through much of Job 33. He begins by confronting Job. Why do you complain against him? So, why do you complain against him? That he does not give an account of all his doings. Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. Job 33, verse 13 and 14. In good Hebrew poetry, he says, Once ye twice, yea twice, sometimes it will say, Six ye seven, yea seven. So, he's saying, in effect, here are a couple of ways God speaks to you. First, in a dream or a vision of the night, Job 33.15, God speaks to you, Job, in supernatural ways. Second, man is also chastened with pain on his bed, Job 33.19. God also speaks when he, we're sick, when we're laid aside with anguishing pain, the Lord gets through to us. God communicates in suffering itself as mentioned earlier people who have gone through deep suffering have a definite knowledge and understanding others of us lack why because they learn some profound things on the bed of affliction how then would Job get God's message Elihu suggests if there is an angel as mediator for him one out of a thousand to remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him, and say, "Deliver me from going down to the pit. I found a ransom." Job thirty-three verses thirty, 20, excuse me, twenty-three to twenty-six. Let us pause here and allow you some time to consider that. Let your mind meditate on what you've just read. Now, admittedly, this may be Elijah's opinion, but it is inspired writing. It originates from the spirit of God, and it pres- it's preserved for us in the biblical account. His reference to this particular anger is fascinating, isn't it? Could it be that? In those days when God communicated through dreams and visions, when God spoke directly to individuals in a supernatural manner, there was a mediating angel? Apparently so. John Hartley writes of this angel in his thorough work on Job. Quote, Elihu reaches that there is a... Okay. Elihu teaches that there is a heavenly intercessor who takes up the sufferer's case. This helper is an angel who functions as a mediator, one who will help whomever God is afflicting for disciplinary reasons. He declares to that person what is right for him, i.e., the right way for him to take the way that will lead him out of suffering and back to God. Etc. Et et uh, the identity of this mediating angel is uncertain. Elihu is also countering Eliphaz's position that there is nobody one to whom Job may turn for help. Elihu says that there is a special angel who works for The redemption of the afflicted. The phrase one among the thousand, a thousand, is taken by some to mean an ordinary angel but from the way the phrase is used in 9.3 it is better understood as having very restrictive forces. Therefore this meditating angel, or this mediating angel is a very special heavenly creature. In Elihu's teaching, this special angel works for the restoration of those who have strayed from the right way. This means that God does not immediately abandon any of His servants who err. The conversion is the truth. Excuse me, the converse is the truth. He labors zealously for their full restoration faithful service. Before we proceed, a word of caution is needed. God really speaks these days in dreams or in visions. Now that the scriptures are complete, there is hardly a need for such. Certainly, I certainly believe in the presence of angels called elsewhere God's ministering spirits. They carry out God's bidding. They watch over and protect us. Sometimes they even carry God's message more often than not. They are invisible. We rarely hear them or see them or touch them, though they can manifest themselves in human form and have done so according to other scriptures. But in Job's era, before the Bible was completed, Bible, uh, God frequently revealed his message through dreams and visions. Perhaps when speaking to His servants, in the midst of pain, his mediating angel clarified that message and assisted the sufferer in understanding it. Elihu is saying, in effect, Job, God is speaking to you in this. Are you hearing what he has to say? God may be invisible and seems uninvolved, but he is at work. Job doesn't answer. His second speech, this is contained in Job 34, Elihu begins by addressing everyone, Job, as well as his three friends, Job 34, 1 through 15, and then speaks specifically to Job 34, 16 through 33. Because he mentions little that has not already been said, let's cut to the chase. Job still doesn't answer the man. So the lie who arouses roused to anger goes for the jugular. The message conveys just how this is the book, the message conveys just how angry a speech it is. So why don't you simply confess to God? Say, I sin, but I'll sin no more. Teach me to see what I will but it still, it's still, teach me to see what still, teach me to see what I still don't see. Whatever evil I've done, I'll do it no more. Just because you refuse to live on God's terms, don't you think He should start living on yours? Don't you, do you think, you should, okay, let me try this again. Just because you refuse to live on God's terms, Do you think he should start living on yours? You choose. I can't do it for you. Tell me what you decide. All right-thinking people say, and the wise who have listened to me concur. Job is an ignoramus. He talks utter nonsense. Job, you need to be pushed to the wall and called to account wickedly talking back to God the way you have. You've compounded your original sin by rebelling against God's discipline,
2: defiantly
1: shaking your fist at God, piling up indictments against the Almighty One. Job 34, 31-37, uh, the message. Such anger and such Such angry and inaccurate words do not deserve Job's attention or call for an answer. So he continues to remain mute. His third speech, Job 35 here, Elihu builds a case against those with impure motives, that being Job, and emphasizes that that is the reason for God's silence. As before, he concludes with harsh words directed of course, to Job, who is still in pain, again, from the message. People are arrogantly indifferent to God until, of course, they are in trouble, and then God is indifferent to them. There's nothing behind such prayers except panic. The Almighty pays them no mind. So why would He notice you just because you say you're tired of waiting to be heard, or waiting for him to get good and angry and do something about the world's problems. Job, you talk sheer nonsense. Non-stop nonsense. Job 35, 12, 13, 16 of the message. From the message. Elihu's fourth and final speech, a surprising change occurs in the closing part of Elihu's last speech. He gets back to target and delivers some reliable truth. In fact, he makes more sense, and speaks with greater accuracy here than we find from any of the others who had spoken earlier. Elihu covers four major, or four important bases. One, God protectively watches over the righteous. Two, if the righteous commit a transgression, he lets them know they are done wrong. And three, if they respond, the rod of discipline he restores them and for if they persist they will surely suffer the consequences outstanding theology why did the man waste time and effort meandering in so many needless directions before arriving at this destination but thankfully he finally got it right after a splendid summation Elihu looks up and gives full attention to the Lord God. It seems as if he wants to help Job refocus, much as we do when we gather for corporate worship. Written across Job 36 and 37 could be these six words. It's all about our God. The final speech provides a magnificent segue and the moment when God finally breaks the silence and reveals himself to Job in chapter 38. Elihu's words enable Job to grasp a fairly good understanding of the living God. He begins to admit, by admitting, he trembles when he thinks of him. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it loose and his lightning to the end of the earth. After it, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightning when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice Wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Job thirty-seven verses one through five. God is prom uh, prominent and uh, pre preeminent. He is majestic in his power, magnificent in his person, marvelous in his purpose. How refreshing! step back in the shadows of our own insignificance and give full attention to the greatness of our God it's all about him how unlike the little girl walking beside her mother in a pouring in the pouring rain and loud thunder every time the lightning splashed her mother noticed her notice she turned and smiled they'd walk a little further then lightning and she'd turn and smile, the mother finally said, sweetheart, what's going on? Why do you always turn and smile after a flash of lightning? Well, she said, since God is taking my picture, I want to be sure and smile for him. We take a major step towards maturity when we finally realize it is not about us and our significance. It's all about God's magnificence, his holiness, his greatness, His glory. And whirlwind and storm is His way. And clouds of are the dust beneath His feet. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Nahum 1, verses 3 and 7. God is transcendent. He is magnificent, He is mighty, He alone is awesome, He is around us, above us, and within us. Without Him, there is no righteousness, without Him, there is no holiness, without Him, there is no promise of forgiveness, no source of absolute truth, and no reason to endure, no hope beyond the grave. That very profound paragraph, isn't it true? Elihu turns Job's attention to this awesome God as he says, Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God established them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? You you who... You... Whose garments are hot when the land is still, because of the south wind, out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty, the Almighty. We cannot find Him. He is exalted in power, and He will do. He will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men. Therefore men fear him he does not regard any who are wise of heart Job 37:14 through 18 and 22 through 14 Nothing compares to him let us never forget that let us worship him and bow down before him and exalt his name in words in silence and song as in that grand hymn O oh, worship the King, all the glorious above, and gratefully sing His wonderful love, our shield, our defender, the Ancient of Days, the pavil- p- pavilioned in, sp- in splendor, and gird- girded with praise. Oh, tell of His might, O oh, sing of His grace, whose robe is the light, Whose canopy space Whose canopy space okay, Whose chariot of wrath the deep thunder clouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the, the storm. Thy bountiful care what tongue can recite In breath its breaths it breathes and the air and shines in the light. It streams from the hills, it descends to the plain, and sweetly distills in the dew and the rain. Frail children of dust, feeble as frail, in thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. <clears throat> I wonder what God is going to feel. You talk about the thunder and the clouds and all that. Uh, this geoengineering. I wonder how heavy the punishment is going to be for us, this world, If we blindly accept what these men are doing to his creation. I can only imagine what he's going to do.
2: I think it's, This global dimming is a serious problem. As man tries
1: to play God, um, things are getting really, really. I can only imagine. You know, it says you know as the days of Noah, and you know you got all the people and their theories and their. And only only time to tell what that actually means and when it happens, but if it's eh, eh, I don't know. I'm not one of those who say, "Well, we're in the last days." I respect those who say it. I, I don't know.
2: <laughs> I
1: don't know. But I know one thing. Well, it's very—it disturbs my soul to see all those lines in the sky. See how they're messing with the, the weather. How fake the sky is looking. How dim the blue is. How Defiant
2: man
1: is. It's like we all just want to play God. I can only imagine what it, what it could possibly be. Transhumanism? I don't know. Singularity? I don't know. We don't know. Are they trying to go that way? Sure. Man wants to play God. As we shall see in the next chapter, when God finally does speak, he answers Job out of a world when suddenly there he is. Couldn't it have been great for us to have been there? Whoosh, lightning, loud thunder, winds blowing dark clouds across the heavens, and out of nowhere God burst on the scene, I would
2: be crapping my pants.
1: I would have butt paste all over it. Pasty butt is what I would have. I guess that's what my little chickens are going through. I guess it's something that's common in their first couple weeks to get their poop all over their tail feathers and stuff until they figure out how to take a poop. It's amazing how much of our mortal life is about pooping, elimination, excrement. (laughs) It's not spit pooping, you know, all that kind of stuff. We are really, without God, just a big bag of wind anyways, right? Another long-winded monologue, or a bunch of, we're just a bag of wind coming out of both ends. Many years ago, I was not more than ten years old on a still and silent morning. Did I read there all that? God person must have been it must have taken Job's breath away when the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Job thirty eight one okay. Many years ago I was no more than ten years old on a still and silent morning, long before dawn I was fishing with my father, our little fourteen year foot. Bo boat, boating fishing boat was sitting on a slick on a slick and a small body of water just this side of montagorda bay Metagor- Gorda Bay. I don't know we both had our lines in the water, and neither of us was saying a word my dad was at the stern by the old 25-horsepower Rude. And I was up near the bow of the boat. It was one of those mornings you could flip a penny onto the surface of the water, then count the ripples. It was silent as a tomb, almost eerie. Suddenly, from the depths of the bay, Near the hull of our boat comes a huge tarpon in full strength bursting out of the water. He does a big-time flip in the air and then plunges with an enormous crash back into the bay. I must have jumped a foot off my wooden seat, shaking with fear my dad didn't even turn around. Still watching his line, he said quietly, I told you the big ones were down there. That's Elihu's message. He is here, Job, our awesome God, all glorious above. Job, listen. He's here. He isn't always silent. When he speaks, there is no voice like his. Job's view of God may have been enlarged thanks to his friend's final remarks. Robert Dick Wilson was a professor of Old Testament and semantics from 1900 to 1929, at the great old Princeton Theological Seminary, back in the pristine days when its theology was solidly evangelical. Serving on the same faculty had been B.B. B. Warfield, J. Uh, J. Gersham, Mechen, Muchen, Muchen. Machin, I guess it's Matchin, and other fine theologians. When Matchin later left and began Westminster Seminary, Robert Dick Wilson left with him. Together they formed the new school. Donald Gray Barneshouse was a student at Princeton Seminary from nineteen fifteen to nineteen seventeen. Barnes later went on to the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia to serve as senior pastor for 33 years. Imagine that. You no, know, being a sonic number. But before then, about 12 years after his gra- he graduated from Princeton, they invited Barnhouse to come back to the seminary and to preach in Miller Chapel. With a bit of fear and trepidation, Barnhouse accepted the invitation. The day finally arrived. He noticed just before he got up to preach, Robert Dick Wilson walked in and came all the way down to the front and sat close to the chapel pulpit. That can be intimidating even for a pastor as strong as Barnhouse with his old prof sitting so close. Barnhouse said later when he finished his message, Dr. Wilson walked up to him, shook his hand and said, If you come back, I will not come and hear you preach. I only come once to hear my boys. I come only to see if they are are big godders or little godders. Not sure that he understood what Dr. Wilson meant by that. Barnhouse asked for an explanation. Oh, he said, it's very simple. Some men have only a little god, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do miracles. He can't take care of life's details. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and so I call them little Godders. Then there are those who have a great and mighty God who speaks, and it's done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. Barnhouse, anxious to know which category he was, Breathe a sigh of relief when he heard the man's final statement. You, Donald, have a great God. He will bless you, your ministry. He paused, looked deeply into the eyes of the young preacher, smiled and said just before he turned to walk out, God bless you, Donald. God bless you. How big is your God? Big enough to intervene? Big enough to be trusted? Big enough to be held in awe and ultimate respect. Big enough to erase your worries and replace them with peace. When your God is too small, your problems are magnified and you retreat in fear and insecurity. When your God is great, your problems pale into insignificance. And you stand in awe as you worship the king. Which are you? A little Godder or a big Godder. And that's the end of chapter 16 of A Man of Heroic Endurance, Joe, by Charles R. Swindell. And I guess uh, for those who are paying attention, you know, this week i uh, got a lot of downtime. I'm staying not with my son, so. Um.
2: God's blessed us, I would
1: say, those who will listen to this these recordings and myself with running across this wonderful book that reminds us of things that are the priorities in life, that being first and foremost God. Who are you, a little Godder or a big godder? Who am I, a little god or a big godder? That's even a more potent question for myself, as I really have no responsibility or business to, to make that
2: determination of you. Who am I? Am I a little godder or a big godder?
0: I like to believe that I'm a big God, but
2: is it really true? Do
1: I really put my absolute trust in Him? Almighty God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Noah, Job, of all the patriarchs
0: and prophets. Oh my god. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.